Well, if you've been tracking along with us, uh, you realize that last week we started a new uh, teaching series here at Hillcrest called High Five. And uh, High Five uh, is, uh, the idea behind the series is that we would take really popular, the most popular verses in the Bible, and then we talk about them. But we ran into a, you, I shared this last week, we ran into a conundrum because what's popular in one sense is not popular in another sense. For example, the things that people highlight in their Bible or on their phone with version is, generates a certain list of popular verses. People have their favorites that they highlight. But then when they decide that they want to share a, a scripture verse with a friend, it's actually a different list that comes out as the most popular, right? So we, the ones that we have for ourselves are usually promises that make us feel ooey-gooey inside, and the ones that we share with our friends are usually sort of instructive, something they need to work on. <laughs> and then finally, then there's the ones that people search for the most, and that's a totally different list again. And so I had thought that this, that this would be such a simple series, but as I got going, I realized we're going to change this a little bit, and we're going to talk about what five of those really popular verses that show up on these search lists and these favorite lists and, and shared lists that are, that are the most misunderstood. They're used very popularly, but they're often used incorrectly and often taken out of their context, and so they're misunderstood. And so that we thought we'd take, tackle some of these really popular ones. And so last week, how many remember what we talked about last week? What verse? Yeah, Philippians 4.13, which is, I can do... Through, who gives me, who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we looked at the Stephen Curry. And, you know, I'll give you an update on Stephen Curry. Again, he was the basketball player, writes, I can do all things on his, his runners. Under Armour has sponsored him. And now they're going to make a Steph Curry shoe that actually has, I can do all things on the back of the shoe. So you can buy this maybe at Sport Check in a, in a month or two. Anyhow, so that's just come out. So um, it's even going further. And uh, yes, they did win their first game against LeBron James, and I was cheering for him the whole way. I hope this week, because of last week, you use that phrase correctly in your life and powerfully in your life. I hope you said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength when you're faced with a challenge. Or when you're faced with a situation where the temptation was to become extremely discontented, that you use that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength in order to have contentment in your life when you face a struggle. Remember, that verse is more powerful than it's commonly used. It's not just for positive situations. It's also for the very worst situations that we face in our lives. It's not just to change circumstances, though it can be used in that way, but it's also to face circumstances with the strength that God provides and seeing Christ for who he is and the worth that he is. So that was last week, and then I had people coming up to me and saying, you know, Carey Price writes that on his blockers. He writes the whole verse. Carey Price writes that on the whole verse. And, and that's why the Habs are better than the Leafs and stuff like that. Anyhow, um, I think there's lots of reasons why the Habs are better than the Leafs. But I, I don't know if that's one of them. But anyhow, uh, I had lots of people coming up and telling me. And some people told me testimonies. Um, I had one story, I won't tell it in, in its entirety, of someone saying, I had, saying that they had that phrase on their wall when they went through a big challenge to overcome this challenge and then found in the end that they didn't overcome the challenge and the verse took on a whole new significance, a whole new significance in their lives 
And they got deeper into that verse than they maybe thought they would in the first place. So thank you for your feedback. Um, Today, I want to talk about a really popular verse. And I bet you can't guess what it is. But let me just say something. Whoa, 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 don't guess, don't guess. I have to talk to you actually about an issue that's in our church. A lot of you guys get up on Sunday morning. I don't think you check in the mirror at all. I've noticed a lot of like things in the corner of your eyes. Like seriously, people, do you even check in the mirror? I mean, I notice like little eye crud from sleep and I notice little specks. And I think, I'm just the person to help you with that. In fact, with my incredible depth perception, I could probably just come right up and help you and just pull that right out of your eye for you. Anyone want to volunteer? What scripture am I talking about today? Anyone guess? Yeah, take the plank out of your own eye. If that's not actually the statement. The statement that people use, and I, I want to tell you this, why is this statement so tremendously popular? Because it's this, this is probably the one that you see the most in an internet um, fight. Like when people are saying, when people are really annoyed at Christians, this is what, actually, a lot of people who aren't followers of Jesus have this scripture memorized. They pull this baby out. When Christians are annoying, and hey, guess what? Sometimes Christians are annoying. When their Christians are annoying, they pull this one out like a gun and they shoot it. Sometimes Christians pull it out on other Christians and use it. And it's uh, Matthew 7 and verse 1. Okay, and you can turn that in your, in your Bible. We're not going to go there directly, but Matthew 7, verse 1, and if you've got a, one of the, the Bibles from the bench there, it's page 788. So just pull that out, turn to 788, and you'll be right up with us when we get to that, okay? But Matthew 7, verse 1 says this, and I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to jump over to some other scriptures. Do not judge. Do not judge. So you see something where a Christian's online saying, you know, well, you know, that's sin. And then the other person jumps in and says, do not judge. I thought you Christians weren't supposed to judge. And who are you to judge me? That's actually a different scripture, that one. Um, You know, they just come up with that and boom. It's like this, the most memorized scripture on the internet. Do not judge. Are Christians supposed to judge? That's the question I, I want to talk about today. I want to talk about, are Christians supposed to judge? Is that verse being used correctly? How can we use that verse correctly? Because all of the things that we're going to look at in this series are powerful statements. They're powerful uh, scriptures. But if we don't use them correctly, then we're not using them as God intended them to be used. So, so how can they be used? Well, let me just say this. Judgment can mean a couple things. I did spend, you know, I did the sort of things that pastors usually do. You pull out your concordance, you look up the Greek word, and you look at all the different versions, of the, and how can this word be used, all that. Let me just get, boil it down to real simple. Judgment can mean condemning someone, and generally we view that as bad. And it can also mean having good discernment. We say that person has good judgment, and we generally think that's good, Right? So when, when you say, I, I experience judgment from them, which are you talking about? 
Condemnation. Yeah, you're talking about condemnation. I experienced this sense of judgment from, from my peers. Condemnation, right? But you're saying, uh, I had to, re- in buying, choosing between those two cars, I had to really use my judgment. You say, well, that was discernment. Or, or in, in picking, um, picking a mentor for my, my uh, teenage son, I, I had to use judgment. Oh, you were judging them? Were you condemning them? No, you were just using good discernment, right? So what I found was I, I went to this passage initially and spent most of my time in Matthew 7, and I thought, oh, I better really look at what it says across the Bible because, of course, that's how you get things right. Remember, we talked about this last week with I can do all things. One of the first ways you misunderstand the Scripture is you don't even let the Scripture finish the sentence, right? I can do all things. Oh, good, I can do all things. Oh, no, wait, there's more to the sentence. There's through Christ who strengthens me. And then the second way we misunderstand things is we don't actually look at the surrounding thing that the person said. We don't look at the paragraph. We don't even look at the story that they're telling, right? So Paul's telling a story about how he, he didn't need the money that had been sent to him because God had given him such incredible contentment. And that was the great thing that he could do. I could be content in every circumstance. I've learned that secret. God showed me how incredibly valuable he is, so I don't actually need all of these other things that normally I would say I need in my life. So it's actually a story about contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The context in Paul, when Paul was using it was about contentment. Very rarely do we ever use it that way. And then the, the last way that we get it wrong is we don't really look at all of what that person says. So if you were misunderstanding your friend, it might be that you didn't listen to the end of their sentence. It might be that you didn't listen to all that they said in that moment. The other thing is you might not have considered their entire life, right? Because sometimes that gives you context too, where people say things and you're like, what did they mean? It seems like they meant something bad, but no, they couldn't have meant something bad because of what I know about their life, right? Same with this one, same with this one. What I did was I looked at all these different scriptures and the do not judge things shows up in James, it shows up in Hebrews, it shows up in Corinthians, it shows up in Romans, it shows up in lots of different parts of the New Testament. And I didn't have time to go through all of them with you today. I thought I would originally and I thought, no way, there's just no way. So what I did instead was I, I grabbed two of them that I thought were good examples of one, I think is a good example of one type of judging, and the other is a good example of the other. So I'm going to read one to you, and then you can guess, okay? So is this condemning someone, or is this discernment or having good judgment? Let me read it to you. Romans 14, 10 to 13. Okay? You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So let's take a guess. Let's just say pointing this way is that this is uh, condemning someone and pointing this way that this is using discernment. Which one do you think this is? This, when he says, do not judge your brother or sister. Which one is it? Condemning discernment. And now everybody's like, if I point the wrong way, will they judge me? <laughs> oh, yeah, you put your hands down. I think, this is, I think this is an example, actually, when he says, 
do not bridge your do not judge your brother or sister. Why do you treat them with contempt? I think it sort of gives away, doesn't it? That you're condemning someone. Now, if you want to know the rest of the story, I'll give it to you really quickly. There was disputes arising in this church in, in Rome uh, about two big things. One, which days are sacred? Some people held certain days as sacred. Others held other days as sacred. This was something that... Um, was coming up at that time. And then the other thing is, which food can you eat from the market? Because you could go to that one grocery store and get discount meat because it already been offered to an idol, and now, you, you know, do you want those burgers? Some people, Christians would say, yeah, it's, you save money. That's like godly. And then other people would say, no, that was offered to an idol. I don't want anything to do with it, and that became a dispute. Okay, let me just say about these two things, and now this is hard to say. But I think these are a legitimate biblical gray area. Why do I say that? Because when you go back to the Old Testament, you wouldn't find a lot of teaching on these specific sacred, sacred days that pertain to the New Testament. In fact, I don't think you'd find any. And I don't think you'd find a lot on whether meat was offered to idols in the Old Testament. So they couldn't go back to the Old Testament teaching that they grew up with, the moral law, and say, oh, well, it's clear. There wasn't any specific teaching on that. They couldn't go to the teachings of Jesus necessarily and go, what did Jesus say about these specific sacred days we're arguing about and, and the food offered to idol? Jesus didn't really say much. And even the apostles in the early days hadn't really taught anything on it. So Paul is jumping in and just saying, hey, this is an area that you might get into such conflict in that it's possible that you could destroy each other and even Further, you could destroy the work of God. In fact, those are the two commands he gives in that passage. He says, don't destroy each other over this conflict. And don't destroy the work of God. In fact, the way he says it there is, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It would be similar to if today we say, if, uh, let's say Christians had a big argument over whether we should observe Lent or not. Lent is like often observed in... in other traditions, like an Anglican tradition or Catholic tradition, but some Christians follow that Christian calendar. Even here in this body, you follow Lent, and you observe Lent before Easter, all that stuff. And then other Christians would say, Lent, ah, that's not for us. I don't want to observe that, whatever. And so some people say, you should observe it. You have to. If you don't, it's wrong. And you, you don't have to. You don't, imagine that erupting. Now, I know that's not a dispute that I'm aware of in our congregation in any way. But just imagine that that was. And then let's add to that that the other big fight was over whether we should be vegans or not. You know, we should eat meat. No, you shouldn't eat meat. There's reasons why you should. No, there's reasons. And let's imagine that those were the two big disputes in our church. They aren't that I'm aware of. Imagine that they were. And we were all embroiled in it. And relationships were being destroyed. And whatever God wanted to do through this church was being destroyed. And let's just say some wise older Christian like Paul wrote us a letter and said, guys, why are you judging each other? Why do you have such contempt for each other? This is the one way that judging is used in the scripture. So this was a gray area. This was an area that, uh, and, and, and people were turning in, and people were judging. And, and you know, that can happen in almost any area, like honestly. We disagree about a lot of stuff here. We don't bring it up lots, right? I might have different, like I, my parenting style might differ for yours, right? Some of my concepts about marriage might be slightly different from yours, like, uh, you know, 
you, you might have some iron fast, you know, rules in your life about, you know, I, I make sure my wife and I have a date night every Wednesday, and so should everyone else. Every Wednesday, in fact. It's Wednesday. No, not Thursday. It's Wednesday. And I might say, you know, I don't see it the same way you do exactly, but I don't want to destroy our relationship over this, and I don't want to destroy the work of God over this, and so I'm going to come back to what's most important, and that is the work of God goes ahead and that our relationship's preserved, and so I'm not, we seek not to be offensive in these ways and not to be judgmental in these ways, and we get along just fine. And I think generally at Hillcrest that happens. Let me give you an ex- another example, 1 Corinthians 5. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, he means of the world. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. He's saying, seriously, like, you couldn't just totally disassociate from everybody who has sin in their lives because guess what? You'd have to leave the planet. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard a drunkard or swindler. Same stuff, basically. Do not even eat with such people. Whoa, okay, here we go. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So expel the wicked person from among you. So let me just ask you, is this, an, is this condemnation? Condemnation? Or is this discernment? This is a trickier one, but... So I see a lot of people go into discernment, but they're not totally sure because they don't want to be judged. I get it. And there's some going back here and saying, ah, there's an argument for both ways. Okay, great. You put your hands down. Thanks for playing. Okay. I think this one lands a lot more on the area of discernment. Okay? Now, there could, it could bleed into condemnation, but I, I think that he's asking him to discern. Here, here's some areas. So he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about greediness, idolatry, and slander. Now, are these uh, being a drunkard and a swindler, stuff like this, are these gray areas? Could you go back to the law of Moses and find condemnation of all these things? Yep, pretty much. Could you go to the teachings of Jesus and find condemnation of pretty much all these things? Yeah, pretty much. Could you go to the teachings of the early church and find condemnation of most of these things? Yeah. Okay, so not really gray areas we're talking about here. We're talking about areas that are pretty much black and white. And so, and I, you know, I hesitate to throw that out because this isn't a world where we talk about black and white very, very much. But when he writes, he says, no, this is sin. This is actually sin. These are, these are wrong things. Now, very interesting how he, rega- how he says it. He says, I'm not asking you to pull away from people in your community or in your world who have these very sins in your life. Actually, we're called to engage with them in a winsome way. I mean, we're hoping to win them to Christ. We're hoping for them to experience the grace of God, the power of God that helps break sin off of our lives. He says, what I, but what I am concerned about is here is sin in the midst of the church, here's sin in the church, and then you just sort of turn a blind eye to it, you're ignoring it. Here you have all the, the, um, the support of heaven, the power of God to see people delivered from sin, and you're doing nothing about it. Or maybe it's a case where here's people who have access to the power of God. They can confess and repent and, and be delivered from sin in their lives, but they don't want to. They're unsubmitted to God in those ways. They just are unwilling. 
So at this point, and now I assume this has gone on for a while, I, I, I suppose this isn't the first moment of noticing this, but this is something that has happened for a while. Paul is saying something needs to be done about it. So there's a discernment that happens where it says, this is sin, this, and, uh, and because it is sin, something should be done about it. Okay? So let me come back to Matthew 7 and verse 1. Okay. So you've got those two things in, in view. Matthew 7, 1, it says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all, that, uh, uh, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. All right. So here we've got, I, I feel this passage sort of brings a few of these things together and sort of helps us understand things. First is, uh, is the command to not judge or you will be judged. Basically, uh, I, th I think, okay, let's just read the whole thing. Do not judge, you will be a good judge. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's sort of a sobering thought, isn't it? I'll be judged with the with the way that I judge others. The way that I judge others is, is how I will be judged. Now, if you're feeling pretty smug and good about how righteous and well-behaved you are, that's not threatening at all. But also, that would be a lack of foresight. Because <laughs> seriously, just when you think you're standing, you got to take heed lest you fall, right? There's, there's a moment where you just think, you know, I sort of got it all together in these areas. And I'm feeling fully equipped to judge others. I'm not really worried about that measurement coming back the same way I dole it out. I'm not sweating that because I'm living pretty good. But the Bible makes it very clear that when we're in a prideful position, we are actually in the pre-state of, of falling, right? We're just about to fall. We're just about to enter into sin. When we're in a place of pride, the enemy, the devil, is going to have his way with us in different areas. We've given him a, a foothold into our lives, and he's going to have his way with us. Sin is coming. Failure is coming. And that measure, standing in pride, that you're doling out judgment to other people, oh, it's going to bite. It's going to bite. It's going to be painful. So I love how Jesus starts with this warning, just saying, hey, hey, you might think... You got it all together. And that is probably the worst place you could possibly be when you're judging other people, is being in a place of thinking, I'm all that. Let's go on a little bit further. It says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? You know what's very funny right now? I really want to rub my eye because I actually, because of that log, I got a speck in my eye. <laughs> I'm becoming a living illustration. I just don't want to be like those Old Testament prophets that had to lie on their side or go around naked. Those, yeah, those things are, Lord, let it stop here. This is enough. I, I get your point. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it's really important that when we're using discernment about sin, 
we're using good judgment. Is that right? Is that wrong? That, uh, and, and, and we're seeing it in a friend, right? We're seeing a friend who's, in, you know, maybe engaged in some sin or they've sinned or something like that. We're seeing that in their lives. It's really important that uh, that's not step one of the process that God wants to do in the body of Christ. Step one, do you see two steps here? Do you notice them? First, that's step one, right? Where the thing says first, that's step one. First, take the plank out of your own eye. What should be priority number one of the church? Repentance for our own sin. Priority number one. You say, well, i got to get out there in the world and tell people that they're sinners and, and all those things. Oh, hey, later in the message, we'll get to some of where that all fits. But this is priority number one, absolutely priority number one. God wants to liberate people from the power of sin. He desires to see you and me set free. And our neighbors. And our enemies. And everyone in Moose Jaw, and the whole area, and the world. But sometimes we rush out in that. We rush out in some sort of self-righteous zeal to, 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 to proclaim that to the world. And there isn't an inner life of repentance here. And it's like we've got this timber sticking out of our eye as we go out onto the world. Hey, I, I noticed that sin in your life. Let me help you with that. And they're like, You? You seem particularly unsuited to the task. So it starts with repentance. It starts inside the church, and it starts individually. The very beginning is for me to ask God, Lord, would you show me the plank in my eye? Would you show me the area in which uh, sin is, has gotten a foothold in my life? Would you show me ways in which... Uh, um, I'm living maybe in, in defiance to you, rebellion to you, or, or, or indifference to you. Will you show me those ways so that that can be removed? I wrote, I, I, I'm not sure if it's facetious or not. I wrote, this is, I just wrote a plank removal plan, basically, how to remove a plank. And this is, this is let me give you some pointers on how to remove a plank. Because nothing matters after this if you don't do this step first, because Jesus said it was first, okay? So if you're not planning to implement this step, hey, go home early for lunch, because seriously, this is first, okay? Do, uh, do we understand that? I, did I, I don't want you to go home and think that this was last, this was second, this was somewhere in the future. This is first. This is first. This is first. This is first. You start here, it's first, okay? What is it? Oh, okay, good. Two people are listening. Awesome. I love it. I only had one last week, so this is great. No. <laughs> what is it? It's, it's first. Plank removal is first. Okay, here's how to remove a plank. Let me give you some scripture that can help you. First thing I would say is you need to let God's word search you. If you want to remove sin from your life, you need to let God's word search you. Here's Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Ooh, that sounds scary. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You say, I am sort of don't really know about 
the thoughts and attitudes of my heart and where they land and whether they're sin or whether they're not. Well, read the Word. Read the Word. Read it regularly. As you read the Word, it'll begin to filter that for you. You'll begin to, it'll, you know, it'll, it'll start to show up. You'll go, oh, yeah, that's sin. That's wrong. I got to repent of that. I got to confess that to somebody. I got to turn from that. I got to. I got to ask God for His power to, to, uh, for me to be delivered from that. Let God search you. It's living and active, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, this judges words. I don't even know which one it is, but it could be both, and it's fine, because this is God. God's the ultimate judge, right? So, if judge, if God condemns sin in your life. It's totally cool. God can condemn sin because he's, he's God. If God discerns and detects sin in your life, yeah, it's totally cool. Whatever way God is judging, it's right. But let his word do that work. So that's the first thing is begin with his word. Read the word. Get into the word. You, want, you say, I want to be free of sin in my life and it's power over me. The word has, will, will allow you to see. It will judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's, a, it's an alive and active sword in our lives. Second, ask Jesus to reveal... So let God's word search you, but ask Jesus to reveal a desensitized conscience. Ask Jesus to reveal a desensitized conscience. You say, you know what? Uh, I just sort of checked my own heart and um, there's nothing wrong. My conscience isn't telling me that anything's wrong and so I'm all good. Right? Well, listen to what, listen to what Paul said. This is what he said uh, in 1 Corinthians 4.35. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Oh, it sounds like this guy's soft on sin. Hang on. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. What? My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So it's possible that you can have a sense of yeah, nothing's really wrong, but the reality is, is that you've numbed your conscience by justifying sin again and again and again and again. You say, that's not really sinful. That's not really sinful. That's not really, that's, that's, you don't even hear it anymore. You don't even need to hear it anymore. Now you're just engaging in sin, and it hasn't. So what happens um, is that numbness has blocked that voice of the conscience in your life. So ask Jesus if that's happened. Ask him to, to, to search you in that way. In fact, that's my next statement. Ask Jesus to search your heart. Psalm 1, uh, I think it's 139, 23, and 24. I, I think I put 129, but I think that's wrong. 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So I don't search my own heart. My own heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. I deceive myself easily. I justify sin easily. But Jesus is not fooled. And the word of God is not fooled. And so God can reveal if I've desensitized my heart by continuing in sin in a certain area, and he can show me those things. That's really great. So we're almost to the point of of removing the plank, and there's one last step that I think is really important. And that's confessing your sin to another believer and having them pray for your deliverance. Confess your sin to another believer and have them pray for your deliverance. Now, I don't think this is very common in the North American church. 
but I don't think that that's right, that it's not common. Listen to uh, James 5, 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other. Now, I, I bet in this room there are some people who are saying, I've never done that. Some people are saying, oh, yeah, I remember that one youth retreat back in grade 11 and I did that. Or I went to that conference and I did that. Or I got caught in that terrible sin and then I confessed to the person who caught me. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's a lot more frequent than that, a lot more usual than that, a lot more common, that this should be a regular practice of believers. Now, having said that, I realize that I'm as big of an individual in this area as as probably most. But I've come to see that this is really a key in being set free from sin's grasp in our lives. I mean, there's several aspects of it. Once you are honest about sin in your life, it, it, it breaks, half the power is broken by bringing it into the light. I've experienced that. Other friends, I don't know if you've, I bet there'd be ones who could stand up and testify to it. Not necessarily everyone would volunteer to do it, but you probably, there'd probably be many in the room who could say, I had this secret sin. I held on to it for a long, 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 long time. Finally, it was too much. I couldn't carry it anymore. And I told somebody, and the relief of bringing it out into the open was unbelievable. Now, that is awesome, but wouldn't wouldn't it be great if we could actually just confess our sins to each other on a much more timely basis? Not waiting all that time to do that, but we could do that on a regular basis. And then for the other person to pray and declare deliverance over our lives, that we be set free from the bondage of that particular besetting sin in our lives. Wouldn't it be cool if you actually had partners in helping you in the war against sin in your own life? I think God commands us to do that. And it's things that we'll have to grow in. We'll do some things this year as a church maybe to help us grow. We'll take some baby steps. Not some, not some gigantic, massive steps that'll send you screaming to the hills. But some baby steps that'll help us grow in those things so that we can be stronger in this area. So that's plank removal. Let's talk about speck removal. Some people are like, yeah, thank you. Because I don't want to deal with plank removal. But I just want to remove other people's specks. Memory doesn't work that way. If you aren't going to do plank removal, don't even worry about speck removal. First thing about speck removal, and I'm going to go through these really fast. Number one, don't judge by outward appearances. Oh, how many times that has led to sorrow and pain. You see someone, you, you, you sort of prejudge who they are and what they're about and what their life's like by how they look. Terrible. Terrible. If you've experienced it, it's awful. And if, it's, if uh, you've done it, well, uh, it's sort of human to do, but it's wrong. It's really, really wrong. Don't judge by outward appearances. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. I won't read that passage, but he basically said, don't judge by outward appearance, but judge rightly, because they were prejudging him, and that was bad. Okay, do this with Christians only. That's the second one. What, okay, you're going to remove specks? Uh, this, is, this, is, this stage is to do stuff with Christians. So what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church, or are we not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's Corinthians again. So imagine going to somebody who's not a believer at all and saying, you know, you really should love your enemies. They're like, why? Because Jesus commands it. 
So? Well, you have that sin. Yeah. It's like there's a total disconnect there intellectually, but there's an even bigger disconnect, and that's in the power area. Right? It's like saying to a dead corpse, you really should run around the block. Because the reality is, we testify that Jesus makes us alive in Christ. And that once his life is in us, there's an empowerment to actually overcome sin. There's a motivation. He gives us, he gives us, uh, he gives us the will, the desire to overcome sin. He gives us the power to overcome sin. If we're speaking to a word, now, it's not that you don't speak to a watching world about sin. We'll get to that in a second. But to start with sin is the wrong, I mean, you can start with sin in the gospel presentation. That's okay. But to start with, you should do this righteous action that Jesus commands, instead of starting with the fact that they need Jesus to save them in the first place. How are they to have the power to do the righteous action Jesus commands if they haven't been set free from the, their guilt of sin and, the, and been delivered in that way? So we often start in the wrong place, and we're, we're leaning on people to do things that Christians do when they're not Christians, and then we're saying, well, how come it doesn't work? So start with believers. Let me keep going. Don't slander them. When you're doing speck removal, don't slander them. Brothers and sisters, James 4.11 says, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. Do not slander one another. Basically, um, here's, here's the thing. You can approach them in a really bad way. And you might, you know, can you imagine going, can you pray for me? I'm going to go minister to this person. I'm going to go get the speck out of their eye, the sin in their life. Because they're really sinful. Let me tell you about three different stories of how bad they are. Don't slander them. Go, go privately, go quietly. Don't tell ten people. Don't tell five people. Don't tell three people. Just go. Go cry privately. You want to help somebody? Don't tell all these people about the sin that's in their life. Just go to that person directly. Speak to them alone. Don't, don't slander them behind their back. Just go to them. Say, hey, I want to help you. And this is what I see. Approach them with mercy, not contempt. You know, when Luke gives the recounting of the do not judge statements in his, his uh, chronicling of the Sermon on the Mount, the sentence before it is this, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Approach them in mercy, not with contempt. Romans 14 talks about not having contempt for them. So if you've experienced the plank removal process, I'm willing to bet that that's going to actually generate some of that mercy in your heart for another person. Because you're going to have already confessed to God, cried out to God about the, the depth of his sin in your own heart. So when you come to that person, you aren't going to come. I, I think that's going to do work wonders in your life because you're going to come to them and go, man, I know how broken I am. I know how much I need the mercy of God. I know how wrecked I am. I know how without him I can't do it. And so you'll come with a different attitude if you've already done step one. Pray for God to show them the motives of them heart, their heart. 
It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. So pray for that. Pray for that to happen. Let me tell you a quick story. So we were at this conference and this guy was speaking and he said um, that he had this huge video collection. And uh, he wasn't living for God. He just grown up in the church and rejected all that. And he had this huge video, 600 videos and uh, all these DVDs. And then uh, God got a hold of his life in a really cool way. So he became a Christian and started living for God. It was a really neat story. And then God showed him that his video collection was full of stuff that wasn't, didn't please God. So he went through there and he took out 200 videos and he destroyed them. And he phoned his mom, who was a Christian, and he said, Mom, come on over. God's done this amazing work in my heart, and I, I got rid of all these videos that were bad, and, and it's great. And so his mom came over, and, and she, she was all excited, and, and he said, Yeah, go check my video collection out. I just cleaned it out. God just helped me. It was awesome. I'm just loving serving God. So she went over to the video collection, and she's like, There's still like half of these videos are filthy and terrible. So... She was going to go and tell him about it, and God spoke to her. Don't you dare. He's done what I've asked him to do at this stage. So instead of going in there and saying, listen, you didn't do a very good job cleaning out the filth in your life. Look at this. Half of the videos that are left are terrible. She actually stopped because God stopped her, and she, was, she went in, and she said, wow, this is great what God's doing in your life. And it was later on that God spoke to him again, said it's time to go through him again, and he actually cleaned the rest of his videos out. See, the thing is, there's a process. This weekend, I'm going to go fishing out at Kettleson Camp. I'm really pumped about it. I've never really fished, other than there's a one-hour span of trying it and not doing too well, uh, back, way back in my life. I've never really fished before, but I'm pretty sure I understand the concept. You catch a fish, and then you clean it. Is that the order? Do I have it right? Or do you clean it first and then catch? No, I think it's you catch it first. Right? Jesus does the same thing with people. He brings them to himself. And then he starts working, cleaning up the areas of their life bit by bit. He'll show them some things. And sometimes we'll come into their lives and we'll be like, I can't believe you haven't fixed this yet. I can't believe this isn't right yet. And God's got his timeline for that person. Now, it doesn't mean you can't come in there and teach them well and and show them what the Bible says and all those things. But I want to tell you, you come in there carefully. Come there gently. Because God's already at work. God's got a timeline for what he's doing there. And sometimes we're just, we want to run in and and we see all the visible sins and we want to address them, bing, 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 like that. But God's got a plan. He's doing the cleaning. Let me give you the last one. Don't quarrel, but kindly teach and gently instruct them. So let me leave you with one last verse. So some of you said, you didn't tell us how to engage outsiders. Well, let me give you a scripture that will help you. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Verse 23, actually. We'll start at 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So you're on the internet, and you're engaging with somebody. 
And they said something nasty. And the temptation is to respond in a resentful way. To jump into a foolish and stupid argument. And I've been there and I've fallen for it. So it's okay. Wouldn't it be great if we could just jump into the scripture? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. Why? Why are we being nice? Why don't we just give them a zinger? Why don't we just do a shot across the bow? Why don't we just give them right back what they gave to us? Because that's not the way of Christ. The opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. You know, this is a good scripture for if you're dealing with someone in the church. It's a good scripture for if you're dealing with someone outside the church. We don't fight in the same way that the world fights. We fight on our knees. We pray for hearts to change. We seek not to destroy people, but to win them. And we, it all begins with taking the plank out of our own eye. It all begins with allowing judgment, God's good judgment, God's discerning judgment, God's condemnation of evil in our own lives to happen. It all begins at the first step. So today, I just encourage you, we're going to have communion, and we're, uh, we're commanded in Scripture to examine ourselves. Paul gave that command to the Corinthians to examine themselves before they did this, before they remembered Jesus together, before they we're aware of the body of Christ that exists among them and how we're all tied together by this blood and this body. So I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you to take this moment to examine yourself. And let me just go right back through it for you, just real quick, real, real, real quick. Let God's word search you, so maybe scripture will come to your mind. Ask Jesus to reveal a desensitized conscience. Ask Jesus to search your heart and confess your sins to another believer. You might not have time to do that this morning. Maybe you'll have to... Make a note to do that with someone after. But ask him to search your heart at least this morning before we participate. Worship team, I just invite you to come back. Let's just take a moment. We'll just take a moment and just ask the Lord. Lord, would you search me and show me anything I can confess before you today and be set free of? Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you bring into our lives from the bondage of sin. 
Lord, I, because we don't have the opportunity right now to, to break out and to meet with somebody, I, I just want to pray over every person here who's con- maybe confessed something to you right now. Lord, I want to declare deliverance over their lives. That they be set free from this sin. That this sin would have a diminishing power in their lives. Lord, that they be able to look back and say, whoa, that area has lost a good portion of its strength in my life. Just through bringing it to God and confessing it to him as sin. Lord, I thank you that you've given us this avenue of confession, repentance, and deliverance. That you make it possible for us to be uh, broken free of the chains of sin and, and how, it, how it longs to enslave us. But we know that sin for the believer is a usurper to the throne. It does not rule and reign like it once did. Instead, you're the king on the throne. You are our master and sin, sin will no longer have that power. It does not belong there. It claws to get back into that position, but we realize that you're the powerful one that sits on the throne today. So, Lord, I pray for you to rule and reign in our hearts, for your kingdom come and your will to be done in our hearts, that we'd submit to your leading. We'd allow you to lead and guide us in the week to come. Lord, we, sur- we, we, we surrender to you and we remember you at the same time. Lord, remember what you've done for us on the cross. You broke the power of sin. You broke its back. Lord, you were, you were seeing a people set free. So, Lord, I thank you for your body and your blood broken for us. And this morning as we remember you as we, um, we commune together, as we recognize that you made us spiritual brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that uh, we would allow you to judge our hearts so that we can walk in wonderful harmony and unity with those that you put in us into the same spiritual family with. And Lord, let us go with wisdom and tact and gentleness into this world. Lord, fill us with the love that you, um, that you made evident on the cross. We ask that in your name. Amen. This morning we're going to end here with communion. And communion, uh, how we, we do it, or how we're going to do it today, is invite you to come forward to take those elements. And then you can participate. Maybe you're here with a friend or a spouse or family members. Feel free to participate with them back in your pew on your own, okay? So have communion with somebody. And uh, if you're here by yourself, it's totally cool. You can do it on your own. Uh, but maybe you'll see someone across the room and you'll say, hey, I want to I I have communion with them today. Then take that initiative and go for it. We just give you permission to do that. But uh, remember the body and blood of the Lord, his forgiveness offered for sins, and the power that is ours in Christ for those who believe. So we'll invite the team to to lead us, and when, when you've had a moment to examine yourself, just come.